You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Bob Hughes. Well, as we continue our study in the Lord's Prayer, uh, I want us to notice this morning that as much as the Lord's Prayer is giving us an amazing outline about uh, how to pray, the Lord's Prayer is really much more than that, and it also serves as a, a wonderful review of God's purpose and God's priorities in the world. It's a, it's a tune-up for us every time that we, we pray it and we review it and we see in the Lord's Prayer uh, God's desire to reveal His character as both heavenly, which is holy and other than, but also as Father, which is near and personal to us. And uh, we're reminded that God's calling to His people is to function as His image bearers in the world, to hallow or to honor His name by displaying the righteousness and peace and joy of Christ's kingdom in the world. And as we pray this prayer, we're reminded of the royal inauguration of Christ's kingdom on the cross and his exaltation to the right hand of the Father, where he now reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we look forward to that day when Jesus will return and fully establish his will on earth as it is in heaven. And until that day, Christ has sent his Holy Spirit upon his church, hasn't he? He's poured out his Holy Spirit, empowering his people to both model and to proclaim the life of the kingdom that will one day be completely and fully realized on the earth. It's thrilling stuff. But until that day, we pray, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Well, at this point, the Lord's Prayer really makes kind of a shocking transition. And from its high and lofty focus on the reign of Christ's kingdom, the the prayer now plunges us down to what seems amazingly ordinary and unspiritual. From the glories of the heavenly kingdom, Jesus now addresses the earthly commonness of flour and yeast and water, our daily bread. And this whiplash in the focus uh, was really difficult for many of the early church fathers. Augustine, Jerome, Erasmus, all real familiar guys to most of us. No, I know they're not. But, but early church fathers really struggled with how to read this verse. And the idea, they struggled with the idea that, that bread actually meant physical bread. And therefore, they would interpret daily bread as either a reference to the bread of the Lord's Supper or to the spiritual bread of the Scriptures. And the idea of asking God for actual physical food, it just didn't seem very spiritual to those guys, right? And sometimes it doesn't seem very spiritual to us either. But that's really the whole point, isn't it? 
It's the whole point. The story of the gospel is the story of the incarnation. God becoming man. Heaven invading earth in the human being, Jesus of Nazareth. And the story of Christ's kingdom is only fully displayed when it's applied in the physical world, when it's actually lived out in the ordinary stuff of life, in the the daily struggle of paying our bills and putting bread on the table, right? So as we jump into verse 11, we're going to look at four simple points. This is profound, but I hope you can follow with me. Point one, give. Two, us. Three, this day. Number four, daily bread. Let's look together at what each point teaches us, and they teach us a lot. Give. First, how wonderful that Jesus instructs us and invites us to ask God our Father to give us the bread that we actually need every day. How wonderful. Like every area of our faith, it's really all about God's gift, isn't it? Everything's about gift. And God's amazing free grace overshadows everything, even the most basic need for our food each day. He simply invites us to come to him and to ask, and he'll provide for us our daily bread. While we're not to pray for daily cake, okay, like Marie Antoinette, right? Let them eat cake. We are to pray for daily bread, for the daily provisions of food, shelter, clothing. As one writer said, we're not to pray for our greeds, but we are to pray for our needs. The author of Proverbs, just to look at our first slide, the author of Proverbs helps us with a wise balance of thinking. This is Proverbs 30, uh, verses 8b and 9. Look with me. Give me, this is the attitude that's wise for us to have. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that's needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. There's a ditch on either side of the road, isn't there? Either in poverty or in prosperity. And we're to ask God for appropriate, needful provision that cultivates humble gratitude toward Him and compassionate generosity toward others. That's the point. And asking God to give us our daily bread highlights the reality that we're desperately dependent people, aren't we? We're desperately dependent. The fact is that everything we have, either directly or indirectly, comes from God. Simply looking at an illustration, you could do this illustration about any topic you want to look at, but simply looking at the topic of bread, okay? The seed, the soil, the rain, the sun, everything that goes into growing wheat for your morning bagel 
is an amazing gift from God. We do nothing. You put it in the toaster. Big boy, good for you, okay? (laughs) Our mental ability or the baker's mental ability to observe and learn the natural laws and principles that go into baking, the tree that provided the wood that would heat the oven to bake, even our ability to work with our hands and exercise the gifts and talents that serve others is all an expression of God's amazing grace, which we have the privilege of expressing and being a means as, as his image bearers, right? It's all a gift. It's all a gift. Paul, speaking to the crowd in Athens, this is Acts 17, says, He himself, referring to God, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Later, addressing the Corinthians, he says, What do you have that you haven't received? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? These are realities that are easily forgotten for us, aren't they, as uh, living in the prosperity of Frisco, Texas, enjoying life in the top 1% of the world's uh, material wealth, and where our culture highlights independence, self-sufficiency, excuse me, as really highly desirable values. We can forget this stuff really quick, can't we? Here's another uh, slide for you. This is from Stacy Woods, uh, one of the writers of Christianity Today. Look with me. Material abundance in no respect lessens my need to rely on God. Actually, it increases it. I'm in greater spiritual danger when I have plenty than when I have nothing. Hence, the most the almost greater need of the wealthy is to cry out to God for mercy that they may not fail to trust him. We're in the danger zone when we're prosperous, aren't we? Well, let's look at our second point together. Us. Point number two, us. (coughs) Excuse me. The second word in verse 11 is dangerously easy for us to miss. And it's the word us. Okay? (laughs) Jesus doesn't teach us to pray, give me my daily bread, though that's probably the way most of us pray, isn't it? The prayer is, give us our daily bread. Say with me, us. 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 It's a good word, isn't it? It's an unfamiliar word. We want to get used to it. (laughs) Us. Jesus us to pray in the plural. If we're going to pray like Jesus, we pray in the plural. And it's important to understand why. Maturity in Christ is a process of heart and life reorientation where disciples are transformed from me people to us people, aren't we? From a life of self-centeredness, which is very easy. We come out of the womb screaming me, don't we? Okay? 
We're, we're in the process of being transformed from self-centered to God and other-centered. We're learning to live a life free of me. It's a good, we should, there should be a pillow that we have on our sofa. I want to live free from me, right? When we pray, give us our daily bread, we're not only expressing our need, but we're also offering and presenting ourselves as a means of provision for the bread of others, aren't we? When Jesus was asked, and this is real familiar, but when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He responded with a command that's got two tricky parts to it, right? It's to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but it's also to love your neighbor as yourself. And none of us have much of an issue with this command as long as our definition of love is very intangible and love is all about inner feelings or good intentions toward other people, right? All that kind of stuff. But when we understand love as defined by the gospel as costly, self-giving for the glory of God and the good of others. There's the definition of love. Gospel love is costly, self-giving for the glory of God and the good of others. It, all of a sudden, uh, we've got a struggle on our hands, don't we? And we're not alone. Jesus here has faced the exact same struggle that we did. And in Luke 10, when Jesus talks about this great commandment, the crowd responds with the great question, don't they? Who's my neighbor? Okay, I get it, but who's my neighbor? Can you make this a little easy? Could it just be me and my wife or me and my kids or me and mine, whatever it may be? And the question leads Jesus to share a very familiar story to us a story we all know. And it's a story about a man who falls among thieves. And the thieves beat him. They rob him. They leave him in a ditch for dead. The religious guys come by, right? And so first you've got the priest, and he looks at the guy in the ditch and walks on the other side of the road. Then a Levite comes by. He notices the guy in the ditch, walks by on the other side of the road. And then a Samaritan the sworn enemy of the Jews comes by, sees the man. He's moved with compassion. He goes to him. He binds his wounds. He takes him to an inn. All the things that the religious leaders should have done, uh, Jesus is is pointing out that not not only do the religious leaders lack compassion, but he's also body slamming them over their prejudice by making the hero of the story one of their enemies, a Samaritan, right? Well, that's a powerful, we just stop right there. It's a powerful story. But there's really a lot more to this story that we want to benefit from, and it really ties into our understanding of our daily bread this morning. We need to observe the Samaritan's heart of compassion. That is true. Nothing happens without your, your heart and without our hearts being stirred with compassion. But the guy also has resources to be able to act on that compassion, right? He's probably traveling on business. Uh, he, he stops what he's doing. He probably needed to be somewhere at a certain time, but he stops. He's put out 
And he, he takes time. He takes initiative to go to this man, to pull him. I'm sure he's a mess. I'm sure the business guy is dressed well. He's now got blood on his suit or whatever it is. He applies costly oil and wine to medicate and treat his wounds. He offers his animal that he was riding to provide needed transportation for the man. He reaches in his pocket and pulls out two denarii, which is two full day's wages, to pay the innkeeper initially, and then promises that he'll cover whatever the difference is later on. Just let him know what the cost is. Obviously, he comes often. The innkeeper knows him. There's trust. The guy's word means something. But the takeaway is this. The Good Samaritan is a story of compassion, but it's also a story of capacity. Compassion and capacity. Image-bearing the gospel involves both our hearts and our wallets, folks. You don't get one without the other. It involves the combination of heart desire, practical resources, and faith action to meet needs. And this stuff all shakes down into very real, uncomfortable, intentional life choices that you and I have got to make on a regular basis. And it, it... it really shakes down to this. We've got to learn how to live in a way where there's margin in our lives. We need to live with margin in our lives. Do you have in Frisco, Texas, going and blowing, gunning and running, living big, do you have margin in your lives? Do you have time margin? Can you be inconvenienced for other people? Can you make the time? Do you have financial margin? Are your bills to the gill? So that you don't have, are you living so big you got nothing? You are day to day poor? You, you need to have financial margin. You need to take a step back. Don't get that house with the movie room upstairs that nobody uses. Take a step back. Put a bunk bed in one of the bedrooms. I live, we raised our kids in bunk beds. We didn't, not only didn't have, have you know, everybody in their own room, we had a loft and three boys slammed up there. Who knows what it looked like? It didn't, it didn't matter. We got them out of the way and you didn't see what, what it looked like. And you could put three grown boys in one little tiny room, and we didn't have to have a bigger house. We could live simple. And you know what? We had financial margin. We didn't have to buy. You know, one of the great joys of my life, I drive a 2008 uh, little Toyota convertible. I like it. I'm solar-powered. And the, the moment I enjoy the most is pulling up to a guy in a convertible Beamer, 2020, and I get to look over at that guy, and I think, I am so free and clear. You are so in debt. I've got the same son that you've got, baby. I've got a subwoofer under my chair that is thumping just as good as you. And I don't owe a penny. I'm free. I've got financial margin. 
It's 2008. It's lame. You know, there's a bunch of things that are starting to go wrong with it. I can fix them. I'm going to drive that thing till Jesus comes back. <laughs> I am. 2008. It's a Toyota, right, guys? You Toyota guys, it's going to last 350,000 miles? Absolutely. Maybe. Yeah, hope so. hopefully. But the question is this. Are you living with financial margin? This is, it's really, really important. I can't stress it enough. If you're in debt, get out of debt. Get help. There's people here who love you, who will help you get out of debt. Get free so you can live life for the glory of God and the good of others. If you're in debt up to your eyeballs, you're enslaved. You can't live free. You can't live the gospel like God's called. You can't, you don't have the joy God wants you to have. He wants you to live with joy and fulfillment of being able to be an image bearer of the gospel in generosity, in having time margin, in having financial margin, in having relational margin. People are costly, aren't they? Needy people, they're way costly, right? Do you have relational? Do you have, is your life so full with you and yours, your little family, your little identity, your little world? Are you so full you don't have relational margin? Can you make room for a stranger? Can you notice somebody on a Sunday morning and say, hey, let's go get a cheeseburger? Do you have margin? If you don't, tighten it up. Simplify it. Do you have energy margin? That's a question for old guys like me. I'm pooped at the end of the day, right? I need margin, so I need to be careful what I'm giving myself to so that I have the energy to do what I'm supposed to do. Okay? We need margin in our lives. You want to repeat with me one more time? Margin? Margin. That's a godly word. It's a holy word. It's a really important kingdom word. Margin. We can't buy into the American dream, folks, of ever greater consumerism and have anything left to play a meaningful role in God's kingdom story. You can't do it. You're either going to buy into one story or the other, and one story or the other will completely consume your life's vision, your life's resources, and your heart. We've got to choose. Are we going down the consumer story, that that's what life is about, our stuff? Or are we going down the true story of the world, the story of the kingdom of God, the Lord Jesus Christ reigning and his call to a people to live out the kingdom come in the here and now, in their hearts and in all the practicals of their lives? That's the choice. That's our call. That's why Grace Church exists. All right, enough of that. I'll have mercy on you. Let's move on to the next one. May, may not be mercy. There may, may be more challenges to come. Let's look at our third point. This day. I had uh, the unique privilege, some people wouldn't call it a privilege, but I had the unique privilege of having open heart surgery this past year. And uh, I had wonderful doctors who replumbed my pipes uh, to hopefully provide me with at least one more chapter of meaningful service before I wrap it up and go to be with the Lord. Uh, and for those who have faced that kind of a thing, uh, facing death is a wonderful gift. It really serves to intensify the reality of the brevity of life and the importance of 
of living each day to the fullest, being able to see that and value that is a huge gift. As they hooked me up, you know, as they hooked me up to the IV and began to roll me in for surgery, I promise you, I wasn't thinking about the stock market. Uh, I wasn't thinking about how the elections were going to go. I wasn't thinking about closing the next business deal or the, the next great experience on my bucket list. I was thinking about the reality that any moment uh, I was about to meet Jesus face to face if the surgery didn't go well. I, I was going to meet my Lord. It was going to be over. And uh, I was going to stand before him. Or uh, I might have the, if things went well, I might have the opportunity to faithfully finish the race and, and finish well, hopefully. But that moment uh, is a wonderful gift to help clarify things. Sadly, most of us don't have the gift of a life and death surgery this week, okay? Uh, and if we're not careful, we're going to carry on in the autopilot, believing that life is about all kinds of nonsense, thinking that, that the nonsense is what re- really matters, and that we've got all kinds of time, we've got all kinds of time to make course corrections. I'll finish strong. I won't be able to do it today. I won't be able to live with margin today. I won't be able to seek first the kingdom today. But I, w- I will. I- I'll get there. And, and we-, we live on an autopilot. And, uh, and it-, it-, it takes us. It takes us. You know, there are few that finish well. A lot of guys finish. A lot of guys start strong. You ever watch races? You see them all line up. Everybody looks pretty. They've got, you know, they're all cool, different colored shoes. Caleb can tell you about what shoes you need to get. You know, jazzy, bright shorts and the shirt, and they all take the stocks and get ready to run. They all look the same. But toward the end of that race, they all look real different. And, and there aren't many. There's one who finishes well. Thank the Lord we have a champion in Jesus who's finished for us. He's the champion. But there aren't a lot of people, sadly, who finish real well in life. They make a lot of stupid decisions, and they live for nonsense. And they, 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 margin, they, they, they give the margins of their life to stuff that doesn't matter so that they can't live fully for the kingdom of God and His glory. And that's, we, may have, we may be looking in the mirror, maybe me. Maybe it needs to be reevaluated by every one of us regularly, doesn't it? We need to think we've got a life and death operation every week and have a little fresh eval of what we're, what we're living for. If we're not careful, we buy into the culture storyline. The years fly by, and we miss the opportunity to full for Christ. To the, we miss the opportunity to fully live for Christ in His kingdom. <coughs> if we were to just continue to read down in, in the book of John, where the Lord's, Matthew, excuse me, where the Lord's prayer is, if we were to just scoot down a few verses from the Lord's prayer, Jesus continues to unpack this whole idea of what wise living looks like for kingdom-focused disciples. And in our next slide, Matthew 6, Jesus says this. He warns us. This is an important verse. He gives us a do not. Sometimes he tells us things to do. Sometimes he tells us things not to do. And he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy. You, have any, you got any stuff in your attic that's just worthless? Stuff you think you're saving? My wife's always saying, honey, we need to save that for the children. The children are going to need it. The grandkids are going to need it. You go up in the attic, the stuff you've been saying, it's all rust and it's junk. It's, it's gone. It's gone. It doesn't last. Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But do this. Don't do that, but do this. But do lay up for yourselves. For yourself, it's actually self-motivation. We want, we want the best for ourselves, don't we? But do lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moss nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is. Interesting it puts where you put your treasure before where your heart goes. That's a very interesting principle. We think, hey, if my heart were different, I need to work on my heart and then I'll give more. No, there's actually a button that the Lord pushes. When you give financially, he pushes the button and it changes your heart. Where your heart doesn't change unless you're giving. But when you give, all of a sudden, your heart begins to change. You change your priorities and your heart follows. Your heart doesn't lead. Your heart follows your treasures what you love. May the Lord give us ears to hear this a sober warning from the Lord. We want to listen. Finally, point number four, our daily bread. As Jesus talked about daily bread, you can be sure that his hearers couldn't help but connect the idea of daily bread with their Hebrew heritage. They all knew the story that after their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, But before they arrived in the promised land, their forefathers spent 40 years in the wilderness completely dependent on God for their every need. They knew the story of of the supernatural stuff, of how God caused water to spring out of boulders and and, and, and quench the thirst of hundreds of thousands of people. How, How God caused bread, they called it manna, they called it, what is that? that caused bread to supernaturally appear on the ground every morning and feed hundreds of thousands of people for 40 years. God can provide for his people. And that's the point, right? The point is that you and I are just like the Israelites in the wilderness. We're in the same part of the story in our calling. As disciples in Christ, we've, we've left the world. We've left our life of sin behind. And as God's chosen, we're, we're called to follow the Holy Spirit now as he leads us to the ultimate promised land, right? The new heavens and the new earth. That's who we are. That's what the storyline is of where we are right now in God's overarching story of the world. And as we journey, we need to be, we need to be really careful that we don't stop and settle. It would be a bad idea for the children of Israel to just stop in the middle of the desert. You think it's rough? You think life's rough? It's true because you're in a desert. We're in transition. We're not home yet. This is not where we're supposed to settle. This is not where we do new paneling. This is not where we get it all perfect, just the way our dream house. No, there's another house that the Lord's preparing for us that's the dream house, and it'll be way better than you ever dreamed of. The joy in that, that place, that time, will be unending. And we don't want to park or stop short where we miss what, what really matters. And knowing that God provides for us 
the same way that He provided for the people in the wilderness, rescues us from the false burden that we can all feel that we've got to make it happen in our own abilities. You ever feel that? You think you've got to make it happen. You think it's on your shoulders. And it's not true. The Lord's the one who promised that He would provide all of our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ. And knowing that the Lord who provided manna today will provide manna again tomorrow helps us not to hold on so tightly to what we have and to cultivate faith, to live more generous and adventurous lives for the glory of God. That's what we want to do. That's what the good life looks like. Our life focus as God's people together becomes very, very simple. It's all about Jesus. It's all about His kingdom. It's all about His will on earth as it is in heaven. And it's all about my next decision. What's in my hands, my stuff, my time, my relationships. Jesus, His kingdom, His will on earth as it is in heaven, and my, my life, my choice. What am I going to do? What does it look like? How does that live out? How does that become flesh and bones in my life? That's what, that's what the story is, is. That's the true story of the world. That's the true story that when it's all said and done, you'll look back on, and there are going to be people who lived in light of that story, and the ending is going to be full of amazing joy and celebration. And there's going to be people who look back on that with deep heartache, deep regret that they didn't live in line with the true story of the world. They lived for nonsense, and they regret it. doesn't mean there's not grace. God forgives. God loves us. God knows we're screw-ups. We're all weak. Nobody's arrived. I'm not, I'm not captain, you know, holiness. I'm, I'm in the same process that you are. We're all growing together. But that's the story. And if we get that story right, we'll live right. And it'll look right. And, and we'll be the gift that we're supposed to be to the world, where we have resources, we have margin to be a blessing to be able to serve, to be able to meet needs. And people say, those people are so different. They're not like the hypocrites that I thought the Christians were. They say they, they're all hypocrites. They just believe stuff, but they don't live it. Those guys live it. You have to have margin to live it. You can't just desire to live it. You've got to make choices to be able to live it, don't we? And just, again, continuing through Matthew, don't stop with the Lord's Prayer. Keep going, because Jesus isn't done with the topic until you keep reading through the end of Matthew. Down in, in Matthew six twenty four, Jesus cautions his disciples again. You can't serve God and money. You can't do it. Believe Jesus. You cannot serve God and money. Doesn't mean you, you don't have some. Doesn't mean you don't have to pay for some stuff. Doesn't mean you don't have to live in a place. You do have, we have, to, we have to live in the struggle of this, don't we? But we can't love God and money. We can't serve God and money. We've got to seek first his kingdom, okay? And the next verse from uh, you know, Matthew 6, now 25, actually if the worship team would be kind enough to come, the next verse says, don't be anxious, okay? You, you can't serve God in money, so don't be anxious. Be, be care- don't be anxious about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. 
The Lord knows it. He says, stop, slow down. It's good exercise every once in a while. Stop, slow down. Look at the birds. Stop. Take a deep breath. Look at the birds. Look how your heavenly Father provides for them. Stop. Slow down. Look at, pull your car over to the side of the road for just a second driving through the hill country. Look at all those beautiful flowers. See those? God causes those to grow. God provides for those. Stop. Slow down. Look around. Stop. Look back. Remember how God's provided for you over and over and over again. Uniquely how he's provided for you supernaturally when you've trusted him, when you've given, when you've been a source of blessing to other people. Remember, don't forget. See his faithfulness. He's your heavenly father. He knows what you need. Don't live like the Gentiles. Don't be a dope. Don't live like people who don't believe in God and think they've got to work it all out in in their own abilities. Trust the Lord. He will provide for you. And as, as we come down reading in Matthew, guess what? It all comes to a grand conclusion in one of our most familiar verses. Put up the slide if you would, please. But what's, what's, what's the solution? You need to, we need to just do one thing. We need to just think about one thing. We need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what? The Lord's going to provide everything else. There's an adventure for us. There's a life as his image bearers that God wants to invite us to live as that is full of joy, full of wonder, full of delight in God's blessedness. But the way it works is we seek first our Lord Jesus, his kingdom, and all these other things will be added to us. Being formed, not just praying the Lord's Prayer, but being formed by the Lord's Prayer changes everything. Seeing God as our Heavenly Father helps us to rest and trust Him as the true and faithful provider of our daily bread and all of our other basic needs of life. And praying for His kingdom to come on earth and his will to be done aligns our lives, our time, our treasures, our talents with the true story of the world. And it's a story that's worth throwing our whole lives into. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.